So Luke 19, and we're going to look at verse 28. It says this. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Everyone say Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Excellent. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? Um, if that had been bubish, you can imagine uh, more colourful language being used as someone tried to nick your livestock. But um, we're recorded here just a rather polite inquiry as to why they're taking away a donkey. And they replied, the Lord needs it. Um, and we're not given the answer of what the guy said in this particular version. Um, so uh, they took it anyway. Um, and they brought it to Jesus and threw the cloaks on the colt and put, it, put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And that's a sign of sort of homage and respect. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I'm really glad that Luke tells us it was loud voices. This is not a subdued Church of England meeting where you sort of murmur the words, but this is more of a Pentecostal excited spittle coming out your mouth. Your face is going red with the energy. Um, and perhaps one or two people are dancing. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your loud spittle-filled disciples and uh, I tell you he replied if they keep quiet the stones will cry out that is how necessary the prayer of Jesus is that is uh, how important it is to praise God if we don't do it like creation itself will do it because it is just compulsory and inevitable Jesus is so marvelous that praises can come out As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if, even, um, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them. And you can imagine, again, a higher volume. Um, I don't think I'm imposing too much, but as the, the bustle on commerce of the temple was going on, you can imagine Jesus perhaps raising his voice and saying these things in an assertive, shouty manner. It is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So this uh, uh, rebuke of the use of the temple. Every day, 
He was teaching at the temple. And so you have this progress of the story. We have now moved on to what happens after it. It is not just negative judging Jesus, but you get this Jesus now in the temple serving, telling, explaining, giving stories and parables, helping people grow nearer to, uh, to his father. So he was teaching at the temple. Um, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. They did not like this guy taking over the temple with all his wisdom. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. And if you've ever been a religious leader, you'll know that often people don't hang on your words. They wait. They're looking forward to you finishing so they can get on with other things in life. But these guys hung on Jesus' words. This was the temple functioning in a new and exciting way. So Jesus was a devout Jew. And he probably would have gone up to Jerusalem regularly. It would have been part of his uh, um, sort of uh, habit to go up for festivals and sacrifices and, and various other important moments. However, today, something is different. Jesus comes into the city not just as a carpenter. He comes into the city not just as son of Mary and Joseph. He comes into the city as someone who is going to take over. The words and actions are of someone who is going to do something of significance. And it starts off with this choosing of a cult he comes in on a donkey, this uh, uh, very uh, messianic uh, moment, because it sort of uh, says in the Old Testament the Messiah will ride on this uh, donkey, and so Jesus takes this donkey and rides it. And so while the heroes and military leaders and famous people would have come in on, on, on great chariots and war horses with all their cohorts and soldiers and wealth on display, Jesus comes humbly and quietly and uh, uh, gently on this donkey. And as he does so, he looks upon this city and he foretells that it will uh, fall. Um, sort of 30, 40 years later, after uh, Jesus is executed, the city of Jerusalem is laid waste to. And this is a prophecy that Jesus utters. And then he comes into the temple and he sees things in places that they shouldn't be. He sees things in places that <coughs> destroys the purpose of the temple. It would be a bit like having uh, a urinal up the front, something out of place and unhelpful. It would not be good to have a urinal up the front of the church. It would be quite disturbing in the middle of worship if that was it. And similarly in the temple, they had something in the wrong place and Jesus did not like it and he needed to make quite sure that this wouldn't happen again because the temple was precious and it was holy and it was supposed to be for devout worship, not for um, these business purposes. But it doesn't end there. And I really like the way Luke ends this episode. Because we're finding at the end, 
with all his donkey riding, with all his negative prophesying, and with all his denouncing and rebuking of businessmen in the temple, we are told that he teaches. And he teaches not to an empty room, which again, sort of pastors and priests are often very familiar with, but he preaches to a full temple where everyone... The rank and file Jew, the normal people of Jerusalem, they're there with all their sophistication and they're hanging on this carpenter's words. Not because he's educated, not because he is (coughs) a practiced um, speaker, but because he brings the living word of God. (coughs) And this... The feature of the temple is really important. You see, much of Jerusalem's prominence as a city, especially for the Jews, was the fact that it had the temple um, in the middle. It, was, uh, it had been destroyed and, and been rebuilt by uh, Herod, and it was a place of worship and of prayer, um, and it was kind of like the middle of the Jewish faith. That was kind of the orientation of uh, everything you did was um, with that in mind. It was here that the Levites served as priests. It was here that sacrifices were made. It was here that the law was read. It was here that the festivals climaxed at. (coughs) And it was here that the Holy of Holies was resident, this sacred place that had to be approached with fear and trembling. And Jesus' arrival by donkey, Jesus' arrival by prophecy and rebuke, It was going to be the end of everything they knew. Jesus was going to draw a line under it and say, this will no longer stand. Through his death and resurrection, like everything else in the the Old Testament, Jesus is the new and better version. So if you find (coughs) any character in the Old Testament, Jesus is the new and better version. Jesus is the new and better Adam. Jesus is the new and better Abraham and David and all the others. And now today we hear that Jesus is the new and better temple. The temple was like this. It was a little bit shoddy. It was a little bit out of whack. And now Jesus comes in because he is the new and better temple. It is in Jesus that God meets sinners. It is in Jesus that he redeems them. And comes to help. You cannot. <laughs> I'm struggling. <laughs> Despite all the drama in what we know as the triumphal entry, I wouldn't be surprised if most people didn't even know it was going on. You know, um, you can find on sort of Facebook and Twitter um, that this massive thing has gone down in sort of Bubrish and Broadfield and you've been happily, blissfully unaware. And now if you scale that up to Jerusalem, you can have like the Messiah riding in on a donkey and everyone getting upset or thrilled and that probably most people were completely oblivious to it because they were uh, getting on with their daily work. It's just a guy... Riding in on a donkey. You, what, what, where's the big deal in that? And if you had a look, the people that are getting excited and jumping around and going red in the face with singing, 
they were kind of like the society's riffraff. They were, the, they were kind of like the zealots and the uh, uh, tax collectors and, and various other people that weren't particularly uh, important in their eye. <coughs> and these are the guys that are getting thrilled by it. And, and so you can imagine most everyday people may have been at that moment of entry fairly unimpressed with it all. You know, they, they just get back to sort of buying their bread and eggs and whatever else. There is no doubt that Jesus, the new temple, is very confusing. His disciples are dancing and singing and hallelujahing. The scribes and priests and leaders are grumbling and plotting and looking to kill. And most of the population are kind of like, meh, well, so what? You know, what, what's going on here? I don't get it. I don't think it's important. Jesus is confusing. Everyone's got a different take on him. This morning we're going to listen to what Peter would draw out from this. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. For in Scripture... Everyone say Scripture. Scripture. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Everyone say, no shame. No shame. Excellent. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who don't believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message. And this is a fascinating passage, which is also what they were destined for. And that's upset lots of people over 2,000 years since Peter has written that um, They stumble because they disobey the message, which is what they were destined for. Peter launches into this point of uh, (coughs) talking about Jesus by bringing out scripture. For Peter, the explanation of who Jesus is doesn't come from anywhere else but the Old Testament. Forget science, forget philosophy or reason or any other mode of knowledge. When spiritual questions arise, what does Peter do? He doesn't Google it. He doesn't look it up in the library. He goes to God's word in the Old Testament. And I find it fascinating. We have had two passages this morning where scripture is important. Jesus quoted it when he ran uh, and just uh, caused a lot of mayhem in the temple courts. And now Peter uses it to interpret who Jesus was. When spiritual questions arise, I wonder how good you are at answering them by going to scripture. Because that's what it's there for. It's supposed to help us and guide us. It's not going to help you choose what taps 
to have when you are fitting a kitchen. It's not going to help you uh, mow your lawn or anything else, but God's word is there for spiritual questions and answers to help you, to bring you peace, to bring you answers, to bring you insight. I wonder how good you are at looking it up. I wonder how good you are at accessing the app or the physical book when you're not here on a Sunday morning. I wonder how often you actually go to it when you are unsettled rather than just try and get over it or just put on a worship song. Sometimes we need to soak in scripture because it's God's provision for answers. So Peter considers the prophet Isaiah and he finds this ancient and great promise that on Mount Zion, and Mount Zion is kind of where Jerusalem is, um, he says, God will put down a new and highly prized foundation, that God will put down something really important and that others will build on. And so for generations, Jews had looked out for the answer of this prophecy. What was it going to be? Perhaps Herod's second temple was the answer to this. But in the Greek version of Isaiah's words, we get a rather interesting twist. Because he doesn't say that it is just going to be a rock. He doesn't just say it's just going to be a building. In the Greek, we find that it will be a person. That this new foundation won't be um, some sort of concrete edifice, but it will be a person. And this person will be sure and steadfast and someone that others can lean on and rely on and trust in and believe in. And so Isaiah has said this many years ago. And then Jesus acted this moment out in his triumphal entry. And then Peter has this eureka moment and goes, that's Jesus. That person that Isaiah was talking about, this person that Jesus was, he is the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is the answer here. God's cherished son came into Israel's city of cities and he is now the resting place. Yes, we know the leaders and the scribes and all the toffee-nosed, uppity people didn't like him, but the rank and file loved him. They hung on his word. They voluntarily went to the temple even when they didn't need to. I wonder how many of you would come to a church or a church meeting if we held them every day. You go, well, it's not Sunday. I'm not obliged to do that. I can, but once enough is, once is, once a week enough is for me. But these guys hung on Jesus. They hung on His words. He became someone that they could uh, rely on and listen to and be encouraged by. I don't know about you, but I'm not a Christian because of my parents. There comes a point when their opinion of you isn't the most important thing. 
I met a teenager yesterday at Homestead Manor, and you could see that uh, they were dressed in a way that wasn't done for the approval of their parents. And, and you do that, don't you? Like, so my kids will want to sort of uh, um, keep me sweet for a while, and then you grow up, perhaps come a teenagers, and your parents' opinion is no longer the most important thing. And I am 42, probably, and my parents' opinion isn't the most important thing. And if I don't think Jesus is true, I'm going to do something else. doesn't matter whether they look down their noses at me and look disappointed or something else. It has to be true. And I'm not a Christian now because of my parents. I'm not a Christian... I know we have really good meetings, but I'm not a Christian because of church meetings. I'm not a good Christian because I just love our ethics. I just love not being able to swear and um, do not do lots of other things and feel uh, a pressure to tell the truth and be kind. You know, if, if I could choose a framework for morality, I would choose something a little easier. I'm not a Christian because of the songs. I'm certainly not a Christian because of the coffee. Um, The people are good, but you are not a reason for me to call myself a Christian. You're great, but you're not that great. I'm not a Christian because of church history, and I'm not a Christian even because I love long books, because Christians are really good at writing long books. All those things are not a reason for me to stand up here and preach. I am a Christian because I've met my Heavenly Father through Jesus. That's it. I'm a Christian because Jesus, the temple, was where I met my Heavenly Father. Where I encountered the God of the ages, the Lord of hosts, the King of kings. The only hope of life and for now and eternity, is to lean into him. I found no other answer, no other way of doing it. Everything else seems to crumble when you touch it, but you lean into Jesus and he stays there. You lean into Jesus and he's reliably there for you. Now Isaiah says, and if you've got any honesty, you should be confused by this. Isaiah says that believers who love Jesus will never know shame. Now, this is rubbish. Absolute claptrap. Christians have endured constant shaming for 2,000 years. In fact, I wonder uh, whether I have any more capacity to be shamed by uh, humanity around you. People have laughed at Christians through the ages, constantly and unrelenting. There was no way that I was going to be the cool guy at school because I was a Christian. There was lots of things I couldn't do and I wouldn't say and uh, I wasn't interested in because I was a Christian. There was lots of things um, that they wouldn't let me do because I love Jesus. You are a victim of shame throughout your life if you've lived in a conspicuous way as a Christian. People look at you weirdly as Michaela found out when she was praying for Sam. They're like, what? What are you saying? 
not aspirin, you want to pray for me? How very odd. I want Jesus to take us a little further on this. Turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, verse 12. Wonderfully uplifting devotional passage here. But before all this, before the end of the world, Christians will get an easy time. No, unfortunately that's not what Jesus said. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. As a Christian at school, you will get shamed and called out and pointed at and called names. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. You will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. So the Christians were regarded as atheists uh, in many ways in the first century because they didn't believe in all the other gods that everyone else enjoyed. And people didn't like it because they thought, if you're not worshipping our gods of Diana or whatever else, then you are somehow bringing her wrath on us. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. Some of you are like, oh man, I thought... You know, it was hard enough being a Christian, reading the Bible and going to church. And now I can expect more shame and ridicule. And they're going to expect an answer. And I want to do this properly, so I better start writing down my testimony or something. Jesus says, hold up. Let not this worry you. It's coming, but you don't need to worry about it. Don't sweat it. Um... For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. It's the same wisdom when they asked Jesus about paying taxes. And Jesus said, well, whose image is on the coin? And they go, Caesar's. And he goes, give Caesar's what Caesar's and God's what's God's. And suddenly he's kind of taken this really difficult question. There was no right answer and batted it back with something. that Everyone's like, that's a good answer. And that's the sort of wisdom that you can look for or expect. Sometimes it's silence. When kids or adults or work colleagues or family are enjoying themselves at your expense, sometimes just shut up. And that is the wisdom of God. And sometimes it's a clever answer. Sometimes it's an honest answer. But God will help you answer those questions. Um, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. And, they, and, some of them will, and, and they will put some of you to death. So that's a really nice encouraging message for a Sunday morning. Um, everyone will hate you because of me. So Jesus makes it very clear that we can accept shame. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm. And I really like this. And you will win life. Do you want to be a winner in life? Love Jesus. What a great thing to have ended that passage on. Jesus makes clear his followers can expect 
every bit of opposition that he himself faced. Jesus was not warmly welcomed into the uh, uh, places of power, but he was shamed and ridiculed and ultimately put to death. And Jesus says, you can expect the same thing too. So do not be surprised or get overly upset or be put out of joint when brothers and sisters and parents and children look at you weirdly because of Jesus. Because Jesus said, that's going to happen, bro. That's coming your way. Expect it. But... That is not the entire story, and and, and you should be relieved at this. That is not the full quota of your inheritance. It's just constant uh, shaming, and then you die. We are told we can expect power when other people are unsettled and upset by us. The Holy Spirit will help. The Holy Spirit will help us give words. The the Holy Spirit will help us be silent. The Holy Spirit will help us endure. Um, I wonder how many of you would really like the Holy Spirit gift of enduring torture. Because it seems that there is one out there. Um, It may not be in scripture, but church history tells a lot of Christians that if that had happened to me, I would have probably given up a long time ago. But... The Holy Spirit seems to help us in these times of adversity. Even the most fragile, timid, and inarticulate believer, and I think we have a number who feel like that in our church, even the most fragile, timid, and inarticulate believer can be confident in adversity. The Holy Spirit is there. It's not up to them to have read the right books or um, have the right way of speaking. The Holy Spirit will be a good answer. And in the end, in the face of all this terrible treatment, our confidence will be proved. If you can stand up so there are many joys for becoming a Christian, becoming a Christian early on. But one of the things that does mean is that you are also subject to ridicule for virtually what feels like your entire life. But at the end of it, Jesus goes, well done. You, you do believe it. You've lasted an entire lifetime sticking up for me where no one else would. And so when the last trumpet sounds, when the book that holds all the deeds of mankind is exposed, when all our deeds are laid bare, there is no shame for us, because that's what Isaiah was saying. We will stand brave and tall, because we encountered God in Jesus the temple, and he has cleansed us. So there's that. Now, in verse 8, Peter looks at another passage from Isaiah. He says, This rock that the Christians have learned to lean into and find comfort in and joy, this rock is not a universal blessing. This rock performs more than one rock-like 
function. Jesus becomes a trip hazard to a whole array of people that thought they were doing okay. Turn to Luke chapter 7, it says this. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, John sent them to the Lord and asking, Are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus is confusing. Even John the Baptist, this prophet, wasn't quite sure whether Jesus was Messiah or not. At that time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. (coughs) The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus was very aware that you could look at him in a number of different ways. And not all of those ways led to life. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about him. And he goes, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go and see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is one about whom is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And even all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's ways were right because they had been baptized by John. But Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the market and calling out to each other. Um, We played a pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. And in this passage, we find Jesus is confusing. We find Jesus confusing even John the Baptist. We find Jesus confusing the scribes and religious leaders. They are saw him and there was internal conflict over who he was. They had to weigh the evidence up. Jesus' wisdom and healing was clear enough. Everyone could acknowledge that. But he ate and drank without religious obsession. You know, John ate very few things and seemed to have a very... um, uh, aesthetic lifestyle but Jesus just filled his belly every time he felt like it what he was mates with all the people that we regarded unclean or as fringe or as a threat to society 
Jesus was not one that fitted in to people's idea of what religiousness looked like. The so-called experts had hearts that were far from God's. And Jesus exposed this because they rejected God incarnate. And then Peter ends this little episode by saying the stumbling was ordained. That God decided that these people would trip over Jesus. That they wouldn't lean into him as someone that was helpful, that they, life would be made worse because of him. Now, there are awesome volumes of theologians arguing over what on earth this means. But I think we can say that Peter is not saying that all these people are destined to hell and there's nothing they can do about them. Because later in his letter, Peter says that we convince unbelievers of the truth. That all the unbelievers out there who laugh at us because we're Christians, there will be times and moments when we can convince them of the truth. Whether they, we uh, see a healing in their lives or we get to speak wisdom or, or something else that penetrates their hearts. What Peter is doing is saying that all these sinners who laugh and joke at your expense, they are not outside God's sovereignty. These people that jeer and make your life merry hell by their awkwardness, they are not outside God's purposes. As we face relentless Shaming, Peter says, you can relax because it's not outside of God's control. He's got this. It may look chaotic and hateful and horrible and you may long for it to end, but this is not outside God's purposes. It is a mystery. It is a mystery how God can permit evil. There are some wonderfully clever answers. But when you really nail, uh, drill down into it, there comes a point where you just go, I'm not really clear how God can allow that. I'm not really happy with the answers that I've heard. And we can struggle with it. I'm sure all of us had something bad happen to us and we're like, yeah, how can God be sovereign over that and still allow that to happen? And let me tell you, as far as I can see, every train of thought related to theology ends ultimately in a mystery. You can use fancy words and wonderful technical terms and travel along all sorts of explanations of different things. But ultimately, there comes a point where theologians go, it's a mystery at that point. We're we're not quite clear. God isn't transparent We can't drill down into God's person and find the final answer that we're longing for. We've got signposts and indications and illusions, but they're not the end point that we're after. And if we're 
scientists and philosophers and people that cherish reason. The song Tim chose earlier will disturb us. When we sung about we may not understand it, I wonder how you felt. When I first sung it, I was like, well, I don't like that. We can scrub that out of the uh, lexicon of uh, songs that we're going to sing, that we can't understand it. But it's true. There is mystery all over this faith, and we have to hold it in tension with all the things that we do know. There is all sorts of things that we learn about in Scripture, that we experience in life, that we don't get the final answer to. And the best answer to all of this wondering is Job. I do love Job. Job suffers incomprehensibly with no idea why he does it um, while God allows that. And then he sort of rails at God and goes, I'm not a sinful man. It doesn't seem to be connected to my sinfulness. But all this horror has been visited on me. And God goes, have you made the mountain goats that laugh? And Job goes, what? And God goes, you'll never know everything. I'm God. You have to allow for a bit of mystery. You have to allow for the fact that I'm bigger and more powerful than me. You have to make room in your mind and in your life for the fact I am wonderful and glorious and beyond your understanding. And he says this. I mean, it's the message translation. I admit I once lived by rumours of you. You know, arguments and reasons and other people's thoughts. Now I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry, forgive me. I'll never do that again, I promise. I'll never live again on the crusts of hearsay and the crumbs of rumour. Job was saying, you know, I wanted all these answers, but he didn't need the answers. He needed God. He needed to encounter God and suddenly his uptightness about reason faded away in the presence of his king. So I want you to just remind you, and in some ways I'm a little disappointed in this sermon because I haven't got lots of interesting books to read you from. I do love uh, reading from lots of different books, and it's just been about Jesus today. But in another way, it's been really good because you just sort of focus on Jesus. And I don't have to be clever and impressive and literary because kind of Jesus speaks to himself, doesn't he? Yes. We cling to Jesus because he is our temple. He is the place that we meet God. Not that we hear things about him, not that we hear other people's stories about him, but that we encounter him face to face. And there's no other place I would rather go. Please bow your heads. Father, we are dead chuffed that you sent Jesus. We just thank you for him. Uh, Words very quickly run out. But we thank you that he is a firm foundation to build on. We thank you that we lean on him. All our worries fade away and joy fills our hearts. Lord God, I pray that we would be really good at leaning on him. 
We will be good at leaning on him when shame and ridicule comes. I pray that we would be good at leaning on him um, when we are faced with questions about evil and mystery and uh, stuff that we find hard to get our hand around, that we would just lean back into God the Son, whose beauty and majesty is inescapable, who sits on that throne, surrounded in a rainbow of emerald and ruby, where lightning is striking and there's peals of thunder, where the majesty is undeniable, And his strength and power and legacy will win out. Lord God, I thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.